0: God's word from from the New Testament, give your attention to the reading of it, Mark 11, the first 11 verses, God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to him, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. As for the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. Let us pray. So if you have a dog, what do you do for training? Well, as you know, there's a big difference between a trained and an untrained dog. First, there's house training, which hopefully every dog gets. But then you can train to the leash, in obedience, or to fetch a ball. Next, there's advanced training, where dogs can do some amazing things. They can herd sheep merely at the command of whistles. Police dogs can catch criminals and sniff out drugs. Seeing-eye dogs safely lead their owners around. And some dogs can even smell out cancers and other diseases for doctors. Pretty impressive. On the other hand, there is an untrained dog, which is basically a cat as they just lay around and expect to be petted all day. And so it is with other animals. Just because it's domesticated doesn't mean it's well-trained, and an untrained animal can be both useless and even dangerous. Thus, our Lord does the seemingly impossible as he uses an unbroken donkey to publish the most profound truths about himself as our savior and king so the moment that we have been waiting for is here jesus has made it to jerusalem as you know the holy city lies at the heart of just about everything in the old testament nearly all of the lord's grand promises center and orbit around jerusalem for literally a thousand years the nucleus of the hebrew's faith has laid in zion the city of our God. If the Messiah is to do his job, he must labor in Jerusalem. Yet for Mark, this is the first time Jesus has ever made it to Jerusalem. Now, sure, in real life, Jesus has been there many times, but in terms of Mark's presentation of our Lord's official ministry, he's never been here. It's almost as if Jesus has been trying to avoid Jerusalem. This means there's an extra helping of suspense and excitement upon his arrival. This is a big moment. Thus, Mark takes some time to set up the scene, which he does first by mapping out the geography. As Jesus is hiking up the road, he first came to the unwalled village of Bethany. Now, Bethany was just shy of three kilometers from Jerusalem, as it sat on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Its name means House of Affliction or Humility, but this hamlet makes no appearance in the Old Testament. Next, the road passes over the Mount of Olives and descends down the western side to run into Bethphage, which is another small village only about one kilometer from Jerusalem. Now, like Bethany, Bethphage does not grace the pages of the Old Testament, and its name means a house of unripe figs. So by these two villages, Mark gives us a picturesque image of Jesus' movement. But there's another geographical designation, the Mount of Olives. And unlike the towns, the Mount of Olives does show up in the Old Testament, but only a few times and in very significant places. The first key occurrence of the Mount of Olives is in Ezekiel 11. There the prophet witnessed the glory of Yahweh exit the temple. The glory then traveled to the eastern gate of the city and departed Jerusalem to stop and sit on the Mount of Olives. As God forsook and abandoned the temple and the city in judgment, his glory exited via the Mount of Olives. Therefore, after exile, the prophet Zechariah foretold the return of God and his glory to Jerusalem. And in chapter 14, the glory made its return by coming to stand on the Mount of Olives. Yahweh's glory departed by the Mount of Olives, and he would return via the Mount of Olives. And yet, we have no historical recording of Zechariah 14 ever being fulfilled. Post-exile, the glory never returned to Jerusalem or the temple. That is until now. Indeed, remember that John the Baptist was preparing the road for the Lord to come. He was the forerunner for God himself. Thus, from John's heralding, Mark has not put Jesus in Jerusalem until here. This means for the first time since the destruction of Jerusalem, God's glory is returning, and he's doing so in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus makes his approach to the city here not as a mere man, But as the incarnate God, after 600 years, God returns to his city. Jesus comes to Jerusalem by the Mount of Olives. This is momentous. And so, to fit the grand occasion, Jesus planned it out just so. He catered every last detail. And for the setup, he employs two disciples who aren't named for us. Yet he sends the two into the village in front of them, either Bethany or Bethphage. And once they enter the village, they find a colt tied up, which they're to bring to him. Yet this tied up colt is roped to several Old Testament texts. To begin with, the bound docky colt is a reference to Genesis 49 and the royal promise made to Judah. He bound his colt to a choice line. This cult marks Jesus as the line of the tribe of Judah, the son of David, just as Bartimaeus recently announced. Next, this Genesis passage is picked up by Zechariah in chapter 9. There he calls Jerusalem to rejoice, for her king is coming to her, righteous and humble, and riding on a donkey, the cult of a Jenny. The promise made in Genesis 49 that is refined and clarified in Zechariah 9, Jesus picks up and acts out to fulfill them both. Indeed, Solomon rode David's donkey. Has he entered Jerusalem to be coronated and enthroned? Well, one greater than Solomon has come. Yet there's something else about this donkey that sets it apart. No one has ever sat on it before. This fires on two levels. First, in the Old Testament, when an animal had been unused for common labor, it was still considered sort of holy. Before it had been yoked or pulled a wagon or broken to ride, it was special and able to be set apart for holy work. This young donkey, then, is fit and ready for the holy task of carrying the God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Second, to never have been sat on means the colt is unbroken. It's domesticated but not trained. The colt is still part wild, and normally what happens if you try to sit on an unbroken donkey? Well, it kicks and bucks. The donkey will toss you up like a baseball and knock you out of the park with its hooves. So the colt, to let Jesus ride it and it not throw a tantrum, signals that it knows its divine master. In this regard, animals are smarter than us humans. We deny our creator and rebel against him. Animals, though, always sense their maker and happily serve his will. The cult's submission to Christ testifies to his heavenly origin and divine nature. But there's one more detail about our Lord's planned arrival. He informs the two disciples that someone will ask what they're up to. For strangers, to walk into a town and to walk off with a colt looks very much like robbery. What are you doing? This is not a question for information primarily, but it's an alarm to stop. It's a siren to arrest a robbery in progress. Thus, Jesus arms his disciples with a quip to get away. Literally, he says, the Lord or its Lord or its owner has need of it. Now, this can be heard in two ways. Without spiritual ears, it sounds like the owner needs the cult. The disciples are just retrieving it for its rightful owner. And yet, with proper hearing, this is not the human owner, but it is the Lord. In all caps, the divine Messiah is requisitioning this cult for his royal and sacred purposes. And the right of requisition belongs to the king alone. Thus the Lord will employ the cult and he will return it promptly. Jesus is not a friend or neighbor who borrows something and never returns it. Well these are our Lord's plans for coming to Jerusalem, and they all revolve around this unbroken donkey colt. Of course, Jesus' plans are not frustrated. We often plan only for them to be foiled, but he or his his unfold just as he spoke them. The two disciples run ahead, and there it is, tied up in the street, a colt having never been ridden. They untie it only to be stopped by a citizen's arrest. They mention that the Lord needs to borrow it, and without delay, they return after a successful mission. And Mark relays every last detail fulfilled, not to show that Jesus is a good planner, but to reveal his prophetic word. This is the power of his word, to speak just so and for it to come true with precision. Moreover, if he is able to finish his word here, then he's able to fulfill the old prophetic words of Genesis 49 and Zechariah chapter 9 and 14. A prophet is proven true by the fulfillment of his word, and so Jesus is a true prophet. And with the disciples back, the festivities can commence. The disciples spread their cloaks on the colt like a royal saddle, and Jesus sits on the donkey that has never been sat on before. The colt does not go crazy with bucking and kicking. That is, we do not come to a rodeo, but to a royal parade. Indeed, at this point, just about everyone starts to catch on to what's going on. After chanting the son of David by Bartimaeus, the crowd recognizes the kingliness of Jesus. People lay out their garments on the road, as if to roll out the red carpet for him. Not even the hooves of his mount can be soiled by the dirt. Others join in by cutting leafy branches, waving them and laying them on the road. Now these green fronds were a celebratory element of Jewish pilgrim feast. They were a way to praise God for his lush blessings and bountiful provision. The branches, though, also had a nationalistic force to them, They were sort of an Israelite flag brandished to and fro to hail the kingdom. And sure enough, the happy crowds have their minds set on the kingdom. Hordes of people now gather to Jesus as he rides down the Mount of Olives on his Davidic steed. They walk in front and behind, and in the excitement, someone starts singing. The tune spreads like wildfire, and soon the whole parade turns into a choir. And the song could not be providentially better as they harmonize Psalm 118. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord. Blessing is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now, Psalm 118 is a victory song and an entry song. That is, it calls for the gates of righteousness to be opened to the victorious king as he returns to Jerusalem. It is a psalm of royal procession to praise God for the salvation wrought through the Davidic king. It was created for the very moment of the king entering Jerusalem for the people. And so the crowds have chosen well as they sing Hosanna to parade the messianic king into the city of Zion. However, there is a sharp political note in their song. Note they equally bless Jesus, coming in God's name, and the kingdom of David. In the current lingo of the day, to mention the kingdom of David was a geopolitical statement. David's kingdom was to replace that of Rome. The boot of David would kick out Caesar and would install a golden theocracy just as in the days of Solomon. The people then rightly outline Jesus as the Davidic Messiah, but they wrongly color him in with the colors of politics and the hues of worldly pomp. They get so close, and yet they're still so far off. And this discrepancy is evident by the very imagery Jesus uses for his entry. Now, it's clear that our Lord has prepared his coming to Jerusalem as a royal procession or a parade. And these were quite common in the ancient world, both in the Old Testament and in the Roman world. This was when a king, a victorious general, or some VIP visited a city. It could be their home capital after a battle or just visiting a new city. Either way, these welcome parades shared a same basic pattern and tone. That is, the nobles of the city and the local priest, all the who's who's of the town, would come out and meet the, the king outside the city. The streets would be lined with boys and girls and perfumed with songs and confetti. Then they would bring the king into the city, up to the temple, for a sacrifice and a large feast. In this way, the city authorities paid homage to the king, and the king laid claim to the city as part of his domain. Additionally, especially for Rome, the Roman emperor or conqueror would ride a majestic war steed or stand in a blinged-out chariot. Dressed in royal robes, the emperor's face was sometimes painted red like the statue of Jupiter, And he was adorned with ivory emblems of authority. The Roman would be drenched in pomp and circumstance, images of power. Yet how different is Jesus from the normal standard? He does ride and not walk, which is an honor. But there's no swooning over fancy robes, as he still wears the cloak of a rabbi. The crowd is singing him into the city, but there's not even a whiff of any dignitaries here. No priest, scribe, or governor is there to greet him. All the authorities seem to ignore Jesus. They snub his arrival. And then there's his mount. Jesus rides not in a golden chariot. He is not mounted on a muscled steed like a thoroughbred or a Clydesdale. Instead, he sits on a young donkey. He rides not Shadowfax, but Eeyore. Sure, in the Old Testament, kings rode donkeys. They could even be used in battle. But compared to an imperial stallion of Rome, a donkey is a lowly beast of burden. Donkeys carry potatoes and wheat, not kings. But here is the Lord The glory of God returning to Jerusalem for the first time since the exodus, or from the exile. And he rides Eeyore. This is a vastly different kind of king. And then there's the grand finale to these royal parades. The king would enter the temple, sacrifice and feast, and be officially recognized as lord of the city. Well, Jesus, too, goes directly to the temple. The priests do not welcome him. He does not sacrifice, and there is no festive table. Instead, he just looks around at everything and leaves. Talk about anticlimactic. We expected fireworks, and we don't even get a candle. Instead of happy music, we hear a foreboding rumble. For Jesus to look around... Is for him to inspect. This is an assessment, a putting in the balances, a pop quiz. The eyes of Jesus examine everything in order to render a judgment. Now, he will not publish the results of his test until the next day in the upcoming verses. But he hints at the final grade, for he quickly exits. To depart so soon is a repudiation, a failing grade a rejection. This is Jesus finding the temple and the people bankrupt, and it's him refusing to accept their political concept of his kingship. Jesus is not the political freedom fighter that they want, and he will not allow the the crowds to define his messiahship. Thus he repudiates the temple by leaving, and he returns to Bethany, with only the twelve disciples. Jesus, Jesus escapes the crowds and the public spaces to be with the twelve apostles, the foundation of his church. He removes himself from all social media to be alone with his disciples. Moreover, it seems like Mark is playing off the name of Bethany. Now this isn't certain, but Jesus repudiates the temple to stay in Bethany, the house of affliction and humility. He leaves the house of gold to remain in the house of humble affliction. Truly, Jesus is not a ruler like the rulers of this age. He comes not to lord his authority over, but he came to serve and to suffer as a ransom for sinners. And so is your king and your kingdom to which you belong. As seen here, Jesus is your king. He is the very glory of God himself come in human flesh. This entry is God coming to Jerusalem for the first time since Ezekiel 11. Likewise, Jesus is the victorious Davidic Messiah, The the, the praise of Psalm 118 rightfully belongs to him. And yet all the glory of Christ comes on a donkey. He comes not to feast on a sacrifice, but to become the sacrifice for your sins. This is how Christ demonstrated his power and authority by letting it go to die for you. He was victorious for your salvation, not by wielding a sword, but by shedding his blood for your sins. Moreover, the kingdom he makes us a part of is not concerned with the shining pomp of this world. No, Jesus retires and lives with us in the house of humble affliction. We follow him by humble service, and enduring many tribulations. Beloved, this is your king and kingdom. Let us then joyfully embrace him by faith. May we happily love him with humble service and faithful endurance. And may we be those who ever join the angels in heaven to sing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, blessed be Christ, and his kingdom forever. For this is our chief end now and for eternity. Thus let us sing to our Savior for all he has done for us. Amen. Let us pray.